I'm just going to start this episode, okay? And I'm going to say that this is beauty in the brain. And I have Dr. David Haggerty here, my doctor, and we are riled up. And I'm this is going to be. Your you're not my legal doctor, but I like to call you <laughs> Dr. David Haggerty. But you are riled up. And it is so amazing because everyone thinks, oh, David Haggerty, like he's so calm, like he's so balanced. Well, here we go. Let's go on that roller coaster ride, David. You tell us everything that's going on on your mind. I can do it. I mean, you started me off hot with Bling Empire, so that was just. <laughs> <laughs> we got hot with Real Housewives, Bling Empire, um, all the special behind-the-scenes moments of being thirsty on Instagram and me just direct messaging everyone with no shame. Um, and then we started talking about science and mental health, and here we are now, riled up. Everybody loves drugs. The reason I'm a neuroscientist is because I did a bunch of drugs and I was like, hmm, it's like really a, a weird concept to be like, I'm going to put this substance in my body and then it's going to change my brain and I'm going to like see shit. Like people don't realize that like, you know, like it, it's like, if Wait, you really that think is so about weird it, to think about. <laughs> I am going to take this pill. I am going to do something. Doopy. Yeah. And then I'm going to start seeing like, unicorns flying in the sky but you know what i mean just like even like people who like drink alcohol like it doesn't have to be like crazy illicit dmt joe rogan shit like you know what i mean like we we consume stuff like food water etc but like some of those items we consume and it makes us see and hear things mm -hmm. which is just like how why very interesting little scary yeah like kind of very scary because we have absolutely no idea how any of it works, but you know what I mean? Like, well, I think that that's why I never did drugs because honestly it wasn't about being like, yes, I'm very much a, um, by the books square. Secondly, I'm also very paranoid of being out of control, but also I already see shit and I'm not on drugs. So like, let's not add oh, yeah. fuel to the fire, you know? Yeah. But I mean like, this was the like my favorite like drug story that I always tell about myself is like, you know, little David in college and like in a little bit of a rut. And I was like, I'll take some Adderall. Like everybody uses Adderall to study. Yeah. It's like, you know, the party drug of the yeah, library yeah, in college. Yeah. Like everybody does it. Like I'm the only loser yeah. who doesn't do Adderall. It's <laughs> so, like go to one of my friends who's prescribed it, like gives me it's like ten milligrams. Like, like nothing. Naughty. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> He's like, take this and like, you'll be fine. I like was like cramming back to back, whatever. Like I took that Adderall and I blacked out. Like don't know no. what happened. No, no, no. But like, not like actually blacked out. I was just like, oh. whatever, whatever I was doing, just like totally just like, you know, like put the like Zoned horse blinders yeah. on and just like crushed it for the next 36 hours. Like, I don't think I slept. I like chain smoked cigarettes. It was no! just like... <laughs> I feel like baby David like is Don Draper in Mad Men like I wish smoking in the library like stressing out like trying to finish that last ad read <laughs> just like absolutely and then I was like I like I was like oh, this isn't for me and then like I did it again 
on like a, I was like organic chemistry, like the weed out class for medical school. You know what I mean? Like everybody's like pulling their hair out for a final. I was like trying to study for it, like cramming, just like took another Adderall, like same thing, just like whatever happened. And then I was like, as I'm thinking back on it, like when I put stimulants in my body, no matter what I'm doing, like 15 minutes after I ingest that stimulant, that's what I'm doing for the next day. Like I'm cleaning a room, like whatever I'm doing at that moment when that drug <laughs> kicks in, like that's just me for the next, until like run out of steam. Oh my God. And do you think that that, is that like a normal reaction for people or that's just like a special David Haggerty reaction? I don't know. I mean, like there's so many different, this is, we've like stumbled into, I guess, something that I think interesting here for the podcast i do too i I think we've never (laughs) talked about drugs i think it's so fascinating but i mean like this is the whole concept i mean like so like the way that we look at giving somebody like adhd like somebody who has a hyperactivity disorder in their Mm -hmm. brain not that disorder isn't real but just like the the framing of how we talk about these right right brain disorders they have hyperactivity and what we do is we give them a stimulant Right. So it's like a positive and a positive is supposed to like calm you down. Like, and it doesn't. I always find it funny to me. Like I'm anxious, you know, like I, you know, hyperactive, but like if you give me the treatment, you know, could dig a hole to China with a hand shovel. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like I, I like just like laser focus. Like I always joked, like I could like fix the entire U S economy with like a 30 day script of, of Adderall. Like Bring we're it just on. like let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> it. It's a treatment that it works, but it's you know, like why? How? Nobody knows. Like drug target, like if we want to go into the neuroscience of it, like the pharmacology of it, like yes, we have some idea, but you know, like there's some new paper that came out last week. Now we're just like spitballing, but like there's we're some new spit- paper that came Listen, out. This is yeah. a, this is a fun episode. We're we're hot. We're hot. There's some new paper that came out last week in you know the the neuroscience community um looking at the drug action of like depression meds so like for the last what 40 50 years we've had depression meds on the market we don't actually know what specific thing they bind to in the brain no idea how they work what i'm sorry what no idea how they work what do you mean like if you take a you know a heart drug like it it's a beta blocker we know that there's some beta cell and beta receptor on expressed on those cells, the drug binds, it stops the action. Like we can track it. We know the mechanism. Like we have absolutely no idea what the mechanism is for depression drugs. Like some people have better guesses than others, but nobody knows. Okay, wait, is this like common knowledge? <laughs> this isn't included in the medical rep sales pitch per se. Right. I was about to say, like, <laughs> I never heard that one before at the doctors, but but that's wild. So like nobody knows. So like, again, like, you know, like there's this paper that's published, huge impact, basic science research, you know, like not to say that what they did was wrong, but like they put a target out there. Like we found the receptor. This is the action through the drug. Like we can make more efficacious treatments now. And like everybody who's been in psychiatry for like the last 20 years, like just like instantly dogpiled on it and was like, this isn't going to stand the test of time. So like even when people make discoveries, Right. Like the field is still so far behind. Yeah. And like our yep. understanding of like you ingest drug and it creates some sort of change. Like how do we actually figure out how that works? Like even when people are like, we think we know, like everybody like laughs in their chair. So like, again, just like very weird of like, we take these drugs, 
bipolar drug like ketamine like everybody's all on like the nasal spray ketamine right now it's like the newest drug like it's supposed to save psychiatry like yada 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 nobody knows how it works so you're saying people are just doing these ketamine treatments right like you go in there you go to a doctor it's like these two it's i think it's what two or three sessions or something that Mm -hmm. you do these ketamine treatments and no one knows what the fuck is going on well i mean like we can track the outcome so like you know, we can it run works, it in a clinical trial. but we don't know trial. why it works. We just don't know why yeah, it works. Yeah, no idea why. Not even why. We don't even know how. So do you think, like, that the ketamine treatments, like, from an, from an outsider's point of view, I'm not saying from a professional point of view, I'm not saying from a scientist's point of view, from a human standpoint po- point of view, someone that lives with bipolar disorder such as yourself, do you feel that the ketamine treatments are actually curing people and or benefiting them? Not from a science standpoint. So there's like no on the line there. It's hard to differentiate the two for me. There are patients in the studies that get ketamine that self-report improvements in healthy living. Right. So as an individual, not taking the science hat off, who am I to say that it doesn't work? There are people that experience that, that drug. It helps them. They've been crippled by this brain disorder. If it works and we don't understand how it works or why it works, but if it works and these people report living better and we can track them and they go to work and they have jobs and they have healthy relationships, like what, who am I to say that it doesn't work? Exactly. Who are we to judge? Right, right, right. I put the science hat back on. The abuse potential for ketamine is so wildly extreme. There's that part of me that's like what could it hurt and then there's Mm -hmm. part of me as an informed scientist to be like the difference between therapeutic self-help the drug working and overdose is four extra squirts totally and it's a razor thin margin and i think that the the other thing that you know, obviously with any drug, there's a razor thin margin, right? We call it the therapeutic window. Oh, interesting. So like the reason why ketamine kind of scares me, and I've interviewed two people who have done the ketamine treatments and one that is studying Mm -hmm. to be a ketamine treatment person. What is it? Like a, whatever, not a doctor, but, but Mm -hmm. you know, that's guiding it, whatever. For me, it's the most terrifying in the thing world to me, like thinking about this, like, oh, okay, like, cool. Like, this is the next thing. It's going to cure my bipolar disorder. Okay, cool. Like, maybe I'll try it, right, and go on that journey, if you will. But the other thing that scares me is, like, I know what K does to people because I knew friends that, like, recreationally took it when we went to the club. Dude, you know what K. I mean? They yeah. did K. Like they did. This is this is saying. Like, I can't separate I can't separate the two. I can't separate ketamine as the club drug from ketamine as the pharmaceutical because just like and it's like again, like here's a failure of the medical system of being like, well, because we've slapped a label on it and put it in a pretty medical packaging that you get in the pharmacy, we're destigmatizing okay. the drug. Right. But it's right. it's not. But it's the same thing as MDMA, right? Like now they have MDMA that's being treated like for mental health disorders. Like MDMA was a Coachella drug that people did. You know what I mean? Like everyone at Coachella was like rolling and I was always driving people and I was like, oh my God, I 
wish I could do this shit right now. Like I remember watching people and like, yeah, I never was a drug person, nor did I crave it. But there was a part of me that was always so jealous being like, wow, you guys can all do drugs. And it's like so normal for you. And like, not that it's normal, but like you can enjoy your youth. And for me, like the panic of control and the panic of, I already have a chemical imbalance. Like yeah. I don't need things to go any worse. Like I, I, I'm born bad. I don't need any, need any any more issues, you know? And I, I, I feel like I missed out on my youth. I mean, I don't think you missed out on your youth <laughs> because you weren't doing fucking party drugs in Coachella. I'm so old. But I can see how you draw that line. It's just like that thin line, right? It's the thin line. It's wild. But you know what I mean? Like, this is like... A, I went to Lollapalooza. I was like the asshole kid, high school kid who was like, like Lollapalooza that like all the elders yelled at. Like that was me. Amazing. I went to Lollapalooza all the time. You know, like we were there the first year that Perry did his like EDM stage. It was like this tent. It was like a million degrees. Nobody knew who Skrillex was yet. And like every year, like there's the guy that runs around that tent with like the shoulder baggie on that like sells rolls out of it. And I'm like, you're telling me that we're going to take <laughs> that drug and give it to people who, yes, it has some therapeutic benefit, but like, I Dave's can't making decouple, me cry. I'm laughing so hard. You can't decouple <laughs> that therapeutic benefit from like that memory of like, you know, like people's eyeballs, pupils being this big, like right. raving. Like, you know, it, it just, so here's like, my question for you. So, so, Okay, so ketamine treatment. Let's specifically zone in on that, okay? So I'm bipolar. No, I'm not keeping you focused. This is something that I'm curious on. I'm saying we're going to specifically work on this because there's other drugs that do this, but I'm using ketamine as the example. So I'm someone who lives with bipolar disorder. I go in and I'm like, I want a ketamine treatment because I want to help better myself. I want to go back into my trauma. I want to cure whatever the blah 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 is right Mm -hmm. now I come in and I'm a regular person who does not live with bipolar one disorder who lives a fairly normal life does not have any mental illness no history of mental illness can both those individuals get the treatment or can it only go to the treatment of someone who is actually ill and has a diagnosed illness it can only go to the person who's diagnosed but you bring up a very good point with your question of what's the difference? I mean, what's the like difference? One person because... has the label and one yeah. person doesn't, but in many ways, how people go to get an Adderall prescription. Yeah. He used that in quotes. Wanted ketamine. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like if you wanted yeah. ketamine, you could go get a diagnosis and with yeah. no real biomarker, like, you can't fake getting high blood pressure medication. They strap a blood pressure cuff on your arm, they take it, and they say, you're above this threshold, you get it. Yes, right. those thresholds are arbitrary. It's like the blood alcohol limit for, you know, alcohol. Like, why do we decide on 0.08? Like, there's some arbitrariness to the limit. But, like, there's a measure. Right. It's quantifiable. It falls on a spectrum. And then we could say these data points are classified as disease and these data points are we don't have that yeah. with mental illness yet so like in many ways people who just like doing ketamine 
could go get ketamine treatments. They might not like doing ketamine treatments in a pharmaceutical setting. Don't get me wrong. Right. I'm not trying to say that like just it like a bunch of people who love appealing. ketamine are going to go get ketamine. But like, let's be real. Like the abuse potential of these drugs, there's street value behind ketamine. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not just like Eli Lilly whipped up a new compound overnight. Like it's already totally. existed. So like, to me, it's really hard to uncouple the social drug use, cultural phenomenon around specific drugs that turn into pharmaceuticals. Right. And nobody right. likes to talk about this. Everybody likes to put on the blinders and be like, oh, but you know, look at the clinical trial data. Look at the phase one data. There's so much money in private equity and venture capital behind these startups that are drug repurposing and stuff. Like it's just the machine in a lot of ways. And then there's us who like have friends who've gone to clubs. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. To be like, oh, so ketamine all of a sudden is going to work? Like, yeah, it works in mice. Yeah, it works in the people in the controlled clinical trials. But like, what happens when it hits that inflection point where like a lot of people are seeking that treatment? Like, look at, not to say that, not to say that Adderall and Vyvanse and stuff aren't great therapeutics. They're very useful for people who have ADHD. Like, but like, look at the culture around those drugs. When they were being tested in the 90s, in mice and in rats and in monkeys and in small controlled clinical trials with lots of billions of dollars behind them from drug companies, the results were beautiful and the side effects were nothing. Mm -hmm. And look what happens when it hits its sort of carrying capacity in the general population. And it's still very helpful for the people who need it, but look how many sort of People are abusing it. The abuse potential from people that we couldn't even conceive of when we were running those trials who would want to abuse it or would seek to abuse it out of the woodwork. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's what my whole study drug. Like people didn't know that it was going to be a like people cut like that's what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Like MGMA, they cut cocaine with it it or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. the 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 second and third order effects of something like ketamine nasal spray nobody knows the pharmaceutical industrial complex if you will will tell you those second and third order effects won't be as bad because right. they have obviously an interest in not only treating patients but in making money these are private companies you know so i think it's really interesting you know like we love – you get you get all the claps from the academics when you say that environmental and social factors are biological. Like this idea of nature versus nurture, they're both. And like the the, the, the social things are real influences on bio health. Totally. You know, especially yeah. when we look at race stratifications or gender or, you know, like how do I be – you know, like our medical school teaches courses on how to treat lgbtq populations differently because the the social factors and you know the the influences that they face change their biology the same thing with black people in america who have been absolutely destroyed by the modern medical system we love to talk about it in that context but we don't love to talk about it in the context of pharmacology or pharmaceutical drugs because like it works in reverse there like biological things that interact with the social environments in which we take these things Influence outcome. I mean, we don't want to think about it in reverse. So what do we think is going to happen? I don't know. It's a nightmare. <laughs>
private equity will continue to make money and we'll come up with more drugs and hopefully there's enough like i mean like the other part of this is just like the research if i try and write a grant and submit it to the government and have a decent idea and a decent plan to figure out how these drugs work just doesn't get funded it's not at the top of the priority list so what's on the top of the priority list what the pharmaceutical companies want to do well, not so much what the pharmaceutical companies want to do. Like, I, I, I don't want to like disparage all of the good that they do, but like, you know what I mean? Like, the top of the list right now is Alzheimer's disease. Like, any neurodegeneration disease, like, that's where all the money's going. Like, we have to understand the problem. We need to make a drug. There's nothing on the market for these people. Like, there's huge utility use there. Like, that's where all the money goes. Do you think that there is coming, like, do they see something like a ketamine or something helping with Alzheimer's? Like, is that maybe another reason why they're pushing it? Well, I mean, like the story of Alzheimer's too, is just like, there's been a lot of money spent and no return on it. And why? Cause it's just so hard. It's hard. It's so hard. Like when we crack Alzheimer's, like everything else will look easy. Like it right. is very hard. And there are a lot of people that have done a lot of great work. The academic pharmaceutical partnerships that have been solidified around trying to find a treatment for, for Alzheimer's will change science more than finding the cure well in like a positive uh, way. Right. But like, it's just hard. And a lot of the drug targets that they've gone after just haven't worked. And they right, like work right. in mice beautifully. And then we try and bring them to human populations and they just, they don't work out well. So like, what we just have to like, keep going back to the drawing board. What is it like? How do you, for Alzheimer's, for instance, mm -hmm. how do you get the mice to have in quote, out of quote, Alzheimer's to then even test it? So is that like a scandalous question that you're not no. supposed to ask a scientist? No, I mean, I can, <laughs> full disclosure, our neuroscience center is a very large Alzheimer's disease center. I think we're in the top 20 of all wow. funded grants around Alzheimer's disease. And we you want to tell them where you are right now? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> we have a partnership with Jackson Lab, which is the nonprofit that makes the mice for the research. Oh, wow. And part of our institute focuses on creating new genetic models of Alzheimer's disease. I don't know if we created it, if somebody else created it. We house a bunch of them. But there's the mouse that we use is called the 5X FAD. And FAD stands for familial Alzheimer's disease. Uh -huh. So it's the five most common human genetic mutations that cause Alzheimer's, all mutated, crammed into one mouse. And how do they do that? They can just shoot it in and, and yeah, it man, goes right Yeah, we just right genetically chemical? made these mice. I have a lot of skills that don't transfer into Hold the Hold on world. a second. I can just you genetically make you some mice. CRISPR. It's super easy. I can teach you how to do it in an afternoon. What? Yeah, you just go in, you gene edit the mice, and then you breed them together, and they make more gene edited mice. Easy peasy, lemon squeeze. It costs a lot of money, but scientifically pretty easy. <laughs> can you make me a bipolar mouse so I can have a friend? Yeah, easy. <gasps> That's wild. So yeah, so we, oh my we have all these mouse models that reliably develop in what mice looks like Alzheimer's disease. So they get, they get the plaques and the, the neurofibrillary tangles 
it's really hard to study cognitive decline in mice because they're not that cognitive in the first place. But we have some right. maze tasks, et cetera. There's a lot of like behavioral assays that we can do to show that these mice are aging faster. Right. And like if you look at their brains, their Alzheimer's brains, they start to degrade. Um, but that's what we test them in. We do all these genes products. We do all these genetic edits. We come up with the drugs. We give them to the mice. If the mice work, we take it up to humans. We run a human trial with the same drug. If the human trial looks good, we'll take it into phase two. We'll bring it into a bigger population. And it goes from there. It's so wild to me how we have done so much with science just from little baby mice. Like it's, and the mice are all like your best friends. You must have so many mice friends. <laughs> I always tell everyone that, you know, animal research is a very contentious topic. I've had friends and colleagues whose cars have gotten firebombed, whose death threats, like I, I don't take, I'm like, you know, like whip two mice together. Like I don't take what I do with any sort of like jokingness or non-seriousness, like what we do and what we're allowed to do. Like we, we try and treat these mice as best as we possibly can. There are thousands of review boards. We have vet staff 24 seven, but like the, the fact is, is there will be, and there would have never been any cures if we didn't do animal research like this. Right. And we're right. getting much better. The number of animals that are required to do stuff like this continue to plummet, you know, like, a study 20 years ago on a drug trial would have been in the thousands to 10,000s of mice. And we're under 2,000, 1,000 now wow. Wow. to do it. So like with better scientific tools, we use less animals. You know what I mean? Like the things become more right. targeted. And you're such an animal lover. So like that's the other thing that you I have am to too, know. But you know what I mean? Like I don't. No, but that's what I'm saying. Like you're not someone who's an asshole. But it's tough. Like a lot of people have very, yeah, a lot of people have like, and rightly so, like have very strong opinions about how we should do this. But like the fact of the matter is, is I'm not trying to invalidate those opinions, but like there's no way to do this or test this kind of stuff. Like, unfortunately, the most we ever learned about the human brain came from Nazi experiments of like mm. treating humans horribly and like slicing their brains open. And like, if we didn't have mice, what are we going to do it on? Right. So, I mean, I, mean, I, I <laughs> and you know me, like I live or die for I my know. animals. So it's very hard, but I also understand, you know, having family, you know, living with Alzheimer's dementia, um, living myself with bipolar one disorder, mm -hmm. you know, and, and strokes, you know, I, I lost my grandmother to a stroke and, and, you know, really, really, really learning about the brain is, is so important. And I think that there are a lot of labs out there from what I've seen and, and heard stories that are awful, you know what I mean? And are not really caring. Um, and that's why I think it's yeah. important for, for the labs like such as yours who do care about the animals and love the babies as much as, you know, they can, but need to do the work. I think that it's important to, to share that and like give like a human, like, to show em that you have empathy for these, these creatures, but you also are trying to save humanity, you know, and save families from suffering for watching their loved ones just deteriorate in front of their eyes and be hopeless. Yeah. 
I mean, it's, it's tough. It's personally very scary and difficult to tell people what I do because you don't know what their reaction will be. Really? You know, like I live my life as an open book, obviously. Like you've seen that from other, but like, you know what I mean? Like, like the death threats are real. Like the cars being firebombed, you know, like blood thrown on you. Like it happens. Like we have security in our buildings 24 seven for this stuff. Like it's kind of scary because it takes one person. You know what I mean? Who like doesn't believe in what you're doing and wants to take matters into their own hands. So like, I like to talk about it because I think that it it really outweighs the bad, but like, you know, however you feel about it, like the, the, the end of the story is it's like, there are no pharmaceutical developments or understandings that can help humanity without doing this kind of stuff just doesn't exist yet. When these people do speak up and, and I know it's, you know, like I, I love PETA. I would never wear a fur coat, like stuff like that. Right. There's there's a lot of difference between a mink farm where they're literally skinning animals alive for you to wear it and then someone that's trying to help your grandparents, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is ha, have they ever come to you? Not PETA, but I'm saying these people that are against um, the animal testing. It's not like you're testing makeup first and foremost. I just want everyone to know that. I yeah, mean, that no. to me is like that's, <laughs> we do not that's test makeup. fucking absurd to me. Like when when they're this testing is not like eyelashes on monkeys, you know, and I'm like, leave them fucking monkeys alone. Mm-hmm. Um, but have they ever approached you to be like, I don't want you working on these animals, but what but here's what you should be testing it on. Like, are there ever any, like, so there's no resolution for them or no ideas. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, come up with another idea. Let's talk about it. People who have won and people who will win the Nobel prize, like PETA and other animal rights activist groups, like more extreme ones have taken out full page ads against these people. And, you know, we have ideas, Jackson lab, for example, is working entirely on creating digital mice. Wow. So we won't have to use the real things anymore. So it's not like my hope in my lifetime is that we become way less dependent on animal research than we currently are right now. But the only way out is through. Mm -hmm. And it's not like people just like think we're going to have mice forever. Like the people who make the mice have an entire division of their company that focuses on how to obsolete using mice for research. Like the work's being done. Nobody is under the disillusion that like, this is going to be like this forever, but currently speaking, this is what we need. Right. 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 My hope. And you know, you unfortunately never got to meet him, but you know, the other half of Wishart, like his day job is growing brain, like brains from scratch in a Petri dish. Like, we'll get there where we can take 3D printers and make brains out of them. So, like, mice wow. aren't in the <laughs> equation forever. You know what I mean? But, like, right now, this is what we need. And, like, this is how the research industrial, like, world gets done. You know, right, like, right. R&D. They have animal labs. Like, animal research in, in publicly funded universities that your tax dollars pay. Like, a lot of that money goes to animal research. Right, because it right. it pays dividends. It's where we find that if stuff works or not, or how new diseases work. So it's how we you know, cure COVID and how we get the vaccines. You know, go and watch on Netflix the CRISPR patent dispute. But like Fang Zhang 
was the one who took CRISPR and put it in mice. And like all of the stuff that you're hearing now from Novartis and we're going to be able to cure single nuclei, you know, polymorphisms like SNPs that cause stuff like sickle cell. Like it's all because of animal research. Wow. Like we don't develop that stuff. It doesn't work in humans unless it goes through that mouse intermediate stuff yet. So it's That's like so wild. Well, I'm we so gotta take happy. you to the lab one day. <laughs> We've gone so far off track right now. No, but. <laughs> but I think what would end up happening is I would go in there and I'd be like, I love all the mice, and then I'd take the mice and bring them home, and like I wouldn't know how to care for you them. Can adopt what? Yeah. What do you mean? All research. I don't want to say all, but I'm pretty sure all publicly funded research institutions have an adoption program for animals that don't have death as an endpoint in the experiment. I want them all. Yeah. You can adopt out. I want all the baby mice. Yeah. Most of the the like vet staff that works in our animal facilities, like they have like pet rats and mice that they've adopted from the institution. <gasps> Cute. And it's actually like a big it's a it's a nightmare to do financially because all of our grant money comes from the government. So then it's like the government owns these animals and the university owns these animals. And they had to figure out this whole adoption system to turn university state funded property, the animals into like individual. It was a nightmare, but they figured out how to do it and you can adopt out. Well, I know what I want for my birthday. Go to UCLA. Go ask them for some pet, pet, pet animals. Can say, can I have tons of tons of mice, please? That's what I would like. I'd really appreciate that. And then I'm gonna have them run around the house, and Sturgis is gonna be like, I cannot have another animal in here. Like, look, they're so nice. They're so gentle. I unfortunately have developed a terrible allergy to all rodents because I work with no. them every day. Oh, it's no. miserable. Like I've been no. wearing an N95 for the last two years. Like COVID wasn't the mask thing for me. Like, if I don't wear a mask into the animal facility, like I am. You're a disaster. There's actually a great article. I got to find it to you about the health hazards of being a researcher because most researchers develop allergies to things they study. It's like one of the most unsafe jobs. You know what, David? (laughs) The more you know is what happens on this show. The more you know. Yeah, beauty in the brain. I'll explain to you how all research gets done in a 20-minute time window. (laughs) Um, Well, this has been a great episode, David. Thank you so much. Emotion shall support.